This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And joining me in the studio today is Amy Skilton, who's a naturopath, nutritionist and herbalist of over 14 years experience and who specialises in several areas of clinical practice, including weight management, gut restoration and food sensitivities, women's hormonal balances and skin disorders. She's also senior educator with Bioceuticals and has regularly appeared on TV, showing people how to regain and maintain healthy, glowing skin. Welcome, Amy. Thank you, Andrew. Now, you and I discussed in a previous podcast how to have healthy, glowing skin, particularly when you've got skin disorders like acne and things like that. Today, in the first of a series of podcasts entitled The Practical Practitioner, we're going to be exploring concepts relating to everyday clinical practice. So, Let's start with right at the beginning. You're a new graduate. How do you get your first client? (laughs) I'm so glad you asked, Andrew. (laughs) So it's really interesting. This is probably the most common question I get from either new graduates or those in their final year of school and probably is the most anxiety-inducing thought (laughs) for those of us who are planning to go into clinical practice. So... First of all, take the pressure off yourself. There are plenty of people out there who are going to benefit from the skills and education that you have since acquired. Now, what's most likely is once you reach that final year of college where you're working in clinic, your friends and family will no doubt have become curious about what you do and may well be trying to pick your brains and get you to treat them already. So there is that word of mouth aspect and it's a really nice place to start also because you've got people who know and love you and trust you. Um, And certainly as you um, really grow your network in that way, you can start getting the word out. But that's really your key strategy is is getting the word out. Now, if you have been working part-time in a related industry area or you're at that point where you're considering doing it, I would really recommend doing that. One of the things that I found infinitely beneficial in a number of ways was actually working in a health shop before I went into practice. It was an excellent way to cut my teeth to learn to think on my feet, get direct feedback from customers about what worked and didn't, get to know brands and what worked and what didn't. Mm. But in that way, was actually able to get the word out about what it was that I was doing. And then as I became closer to qualified and then eventually qualified and worked there, I was actually just very organically growing my customer base. And, you know, the same thing could be true of working in a pharmacy. Um, but really, it's, it's exposure. I, I know a lot of students will sometimes come out of college and think, you know, now that I'm qualified, the patients will line up at the door and be, you know, banging the the house down to get in and then are worried when that doesn't happen. Mm. Mm. Um, People don't know what you do until you tell them. So getting that message out is really key. Now, there is the traditional methods of flyer dropping Mm. Mm. and certainly doing that in the local area on a regular basis is great. You know, pick a theme for every month, print it, you know, on a, on a budget, it's a great way to start getting exposure. Certainly um, advertising in your local rag is also an idea, but I think more importantly, you want to really engage with people, um, really introduce them to who you are as a whole person and practitioner. And one of the ways that I really like to recommend students do that is actually consider going out and giving little talks 
for free yep. sometimes. Yep. And it might be free for a while until you make a name for yourself. But um, this could be, for example, if you're if you're specializing in pregnancy nutrition, you could volunteer and contact all of your prenatal yoga teachers in your local area and offer to come and give a free talk on pregnancy nutrition, either before or after a class. And then you've got your demographic right there who are will you know value highly the information you might have to give. And if they want further information, you just hand them your contact details and book their first appointment. Um, other ways of spreading the word, of course, are perhaps joining interest groups online. Social media is a great place. Facebook now has a group for every disease or condition, you know, support groups and, and sufferers sort of collect to help swap ideas. Pop up in those and be helpful and be of value and start to create a name for yourself there also. Um, and certainly writing articles, guest blogging on you know established websites and generating your own PR is a great place too. But really, there's a lot of um, energy and effort that goes into mm-hmm. promoting yourself. And you know the tricky thing is you often haven't got the experience yet to have that confidence to go out there. So just start small, build up enlist help, you know, maybe even put on something with your fellow students who you've graduated with and share that sort of burden and and start to network in that particular way. What about things like mentorship programs to help you prepare for becoming a fully fledged practitioner? I know Mm. as a registered nurse, we had a probationary year. Mm. GPs have an internship, as do pharmacists. They have their pre-reg year. Mm. Um, There's nothing really set up as a career step for naturopaths. And mm. so that, um, having said that, there are a few um, very dedicated practitioner groups or, or practitioner clinics mm. who actually have a mentorship program to bring in the, the next guard. Yes. Uh, I certainly know of a group in Ballina mm. and I know of a wonderful lady in Melbourne, Keone Moore, I'll mention you. Shout mm. out to you, Keone, <laughs> who's just dear to my heart. This mm. lady is incredible. And she actually mentors new businesses mm. into how how to become successful. Yep. So, but I guess the thing is, how do you find these people? Yes, it is a real shame that the way the education system is currently structured, that portion is missing. And there's a few other things that I also think are missing, which would be great to include. Mm, Um, But yes, you know what? One of the most valuable experiences I ever had was actually working with another naturopath. Now, I was an employee with her. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't a mentorship, um, I guess, arrangement, so to speak. But volunteer for work experience. If nothing else, you know, sign up to come and clean the clinic and do the admin and work on the front desk and, you know, develop a relationship with that practitioner and, you know, see if you can't sit in on their appointments and to learn and, you know, choose someone who is fairly well established and confident so that they aren't going to feel threatened by your approach um, and are going to happily you know, support you and mentor you. And who, who knows, you may become a future employee with them. Certainly getting experience any way you can, uh, can is key. Um, and of course, health shop and pharmacy is a big one. Uh, becoming an intern at a manufacturing company is also a great idea. I know Biosteuticals were the first to create an internship program, which has just been absolutely phenomenal for those that have gone through it. And funnily enough, three of the four interns we had in our mm. program last year are now employees yep. of the company, <laughs> uh, which is just an absolute delight. But find a mentor where you can. Or, you know, if that is not something you're able to do immediately, even find 
a colleague that is working in a complementary modality to you. So, for example, if you're a massage therapist, maybe find a chiropractor or if you're an acupuncturist who also values homeopathy, find someone else out there that you admire and respect who perhaps can't mentor you necessarily in your modality but can uh, mentor you in a greater sense in terms of business, industry, looking after clients and form a a place for cross-referrals as well. And... I was just having having a thought then about uh, if you're going to be joining a, a practitioner mm. clinic, yep. you don't want to be the fifth naturopath. No. You want to be something different so that it's of use to them mm. to use your skills. Yes. And, and to siphon off those people that might be interested in seeing a naturopath. Mm to you. Whereas if you're the fifth naturopath and you're the new kid on the blog, they've mm. got four other experienced naturopaths to see. That's right. You want to you want to choose where you position yourself carefully. You want to, you know, be of value and service to those particular different modalities and, and, and well said. potential colleagues. Um, so yeah, certainly choosing a clinic with five already qualified prackies there where you're the new kid on the block's probably not going to turn out well. Yeah. <laughs> Another idea that I just had, you know, Try and think laterally, and here's a lateral thought for you. Most sports teams have got a dietitian or nutrition on board, nutritionist on board. If you were a specialist in nutrition or you wanted to be or you had an interest in sports nutrition, what's to stop you calling up your local football team or cricket team and actually requesting to to intern or volunteer or do work experience with that practitioner to actually get a taste for what that's like? In actual fact, I think if you can swing that, if you can swing numerous work experiences like that, it's going to give you a much better idea of where the clinical practice is for you mm-hmm. and what kind of way you want to practice. I think many of us come out of college with a very black and white view of what clinic should look like. And nine times out of 10, it rolls out quite differently. No, that's right. And it is really interesting. Um, that is definitely the career pathway that is most often promoted out of uh, out of college. And it's a wonderful one at that. We go into this industry to help people, but there are lots of other ways you can help people. So don't panic if you find clinical practice isn't for you. There'll be other ways that you can share your gift and your skills and your education with the world. You just have to search them out. You know, um, I was speaking with the... 2015-2016 interns mm. and one of them, her dream is to actually help um, develop a young ch- a children's garden mm. to teach them about herbs. Wonderful. Because this is what happened in her native country. Mm. And it, just, it was a beautiful story. Just beautiful. Listen to that on FX Medicine. <laughs> so um, <laughs> what about things like um, if they decide to, they're newly graduated mm-hmm. and they decide, I'm going to be a clinician in my practice. Mm-hmm. I need to set up a clinic. Mm. Set up costs. Huge. Yes. Uh, I think I once heard a lower estimate of this around about 45 grand. Wow. Now, that's assuming that you've got the setup of the clinic, layout, you've got to stock it with some product, and also you've then got to wait for clients and you've got to be Mm. paid while Mm. you're waiting for Mm. your clients to develop a a revenue stream. Mm. And that takes time. Yes. So that being the case, how can you minimise these sorts of costs? Goodness, I'd find another estimate. $45,000 is <laughs> exceptionally high. I mean, this might be a gold-plated clinic yeah, that we're yeah, talking yeah, about yeah. here. Titanium-plated doors. Yeah. Yes. Look, I have I have practised in all manner of 
ways of speaking. So there are a number of ways you can minimise the cost. For example, yes, I did start working out of a clinic with a naturopath there who was paying the rent and all of that stuff and I was simply being paid a wage. And that was great. It was a great way to get experience. Uh, from there, I actually did set up my own clinic and I actually renovated the back of my house and set up a small waiting room and clinic room. And that was a great way to, and it, there was an initial outlay, of course, in terms of preparing the building, but no overheads other than the rent that I was already paying or the mortgage, I should say. Um, of course, there are other costs in addition to that that we'll talk about in a moment. But the other things you could consider is renting a room inside a health store if you don't have any objections to being in that sort of retail environment. And, you know, I've had I've done that a number of times. Uh, there have been occasions where I was able to simply charge by the hour um, or, you know, by the day. So it meant I could actually afford the rent in line with the clients that I was already bringing in. One thing I would say is if you know you're going to go into clinical practice, um, I wouldn't open your doors and then be marketing. I would actually pick a date for launch and I would pick a date for opening the doors two, three months ahead of time. Um, you might want shorter, you might want longer and actually really engage in a Aggressive sounds very harsh, <laughs> but let's say robust mm, and enthusiastic thorough. Mm. and thorough marketing and advertising campaign so that you have already got clients ready to come and see you uh, before you open those doors. Um, and then obviously have all of your systems set up in place to be able to manage those existing clients and grow your business from there. Now, on top of that, there are it's obviously your ideal list, dream list of setting up your clinic. You might want, you know, all of this great equipment. You might want a full dispensary. You might want the latest in um, office furniture. <laughs> you might want, you know, marketing materials and have a social media campaign to pay for. But I think it's really worth um, being mindful of your return on investment and considering very carefully uh, what you're actually putting your money into. So have a think about what you can outsource. So starting with a dispensary, yes, it would be wonderful to have your top 20 or 30 products, your favourite things there on hand to actually dispense to your patient when they go. But I think with that, you run the risk of obviously out of stock, things running out, sorry, out of date, mm. um, expiring, um, things never being sold. And then you'll always come across things you want that you don't have. Yeah. So Gosh, if you had to keep it to an absolute bare minimum, you'd probably say good quality multivitamin or B-complex, a fish oil, your favourite magnesium powder. And if you have a few key herbs that you prescribe all the time, well, let's say it's winter, for example, and you're a herbalist, you might have you know, your key herbs and some vitamin C powder and zinc and just leave it at that. There's Most companies these days, biocuticals included, offer what we call a patient ordering system. And what that allows you to do is one of two things. You can either place an order directly for the customer and have it sent straight to them, but you can actually set them up for them to be able to order specifically what you prescribe yeah. and nothing more. Yeah. You can very carefully protect what it is that they're doing, but they can actually order it, pay for it online, it gets shipped straight to them. You don't have any stock handling costs, you're not providing the outlay yourself. And at the end of the month, you actually get, depending on what percentage markup you nominated, the difference between the wholesale cost and your markup credited to your account. Yeah. It's wonderful it's, for cash yeah, flow. Yeah, it works seamlessly now. It's a uh, beautiful system. Yes. And I might just add in um, some of the liquid herbal companies mm. uh, now make 200 ml bottles yes. as a clinic opening pack. Oh, wow. So they have, you know, maybe their top 10 
mm-hmm. uh, herbs in a 200 ml bottle rather than a 500 ml bottle, that's a significant reduction in Wonderful. cost yes. in outlay yes. um, initially. And then you can grow into the 500 ml bottles as your clinic expands. Yes, that's right. And I do recall, I'm not sure if this is still the case, some companies you could actually fax through a herbal prescription and they would mix it up and ship it directly to your patient. And again, reducing the risk of having you know tinctures in your um, clinic going off. Yep. Mm. Um, one of the things that I used to enjoy um, quite well is um, scratching other people's backs, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a naturopath near where I used to work, where I used to consult, and I used to consult in a pharmacy. Uh, and I had a massive range of liquid herbs. And so because this uh, naturopath was fledgling and they mm-hmm. were just starting out, what they used to do is um, uh, refer the patient to me to get their herbs made up mm. and I would make sure that everything was documented and send them back mm-hmm. to that naturopath. And mm. that that's key. Yes. It's got to be a two-way street, this. You Correct. can't just, you know, send people out. It's, it'll kill you mm. financially. But, but as long as it's a two-way street um, and it's done professionally, mm-hmm. So this naturopath used to refer to me basically for their herbs and I used mm. to refer patients back to this naturopath because it was unethical for me to do anything than, other than remedial mm. consults mm. in that scenario. Um, so it actually fostered a really good relationship and, mm. and I think as, as an industry we need to get out of this threat mentality. Yes. And it needs to be much more encompassing and inclusive and, you know, there are other practitioner groups out there like acupuncturists and chiropractors that do this extremely well. Mm. Why don't naturopaths? Then we need to change that. There is a really big um, mindset issue, I think, in our particular area of natural medicine, which we'll delve into a bit further. But you're absolutely right. I mean, it does need to be done very carefully, very ethically and very professionally. And It could be tricky in the beginning to find someone who you can work with like that, but keep looking. You know, perhaps even the other students who graduated with you, perhaps you could share some sort of dispensary and and, and share the costs that way. There's always a way around it, Um, but where you can minimise your outlay, I would really strongly Mm. recommend you do that. Don't overcapitalise early. Um, You can outsource pathology testing and, you know, for example, I had um, in my early days when I was doing a lot of sports nutrition, I had a lot of personal trainers who, whilst they're not nutritionists, were qualified or knew enough to give reasonably robust sports nutrition advice. However, I had a machine that would actually measure lean muscle mass, body fat, metabolic rate, number of other parameters, which were of value to their clients to monitor their progress. Mm. So I would get an awful number of referrals simply to do this test on them. And I would never interfere with that. But because the the personal trainers knew I was very careful around that, any time they were no longer able to get results with what they knew, I was the first person they sent the people to. So, yeah, always conduct yourself in that manner. Chances are you may get burnt along the way. You probably will, but don't take it personally and uh, just keep your eye on your own own thing and keep going. Uh, what about if you you mentioned you were working in a health food store mm. and, you know, the owners of these health food stores, they in, invest significant time and effort in mm. polishing your skills. Sure. Uh, and making sure you're a good, safe practitioner mm. and looking after their customer base. Surely you've got to be very careful about how if when you want to leave that and open your own premises or move mm. that you don't threaten that 
commercial relationship. How did you mm. evolve that? What happened there? Well, that's a really interesting question. That almost happened for me in reverse. So when I was working in the health store, it was near a clinic and a lot of the customers were coming to the health store and going back to the naturopath yeah. saying, Amy said this, right. Amy said that. Right. And she actually poached me <laughs> to go and work for her. Um, but... How I see it is they're very complementary businesses. You're going to get people who are just rushing in to pick something up quickly while they're doing their groceries, whereas what you're providing as a practitioner is a completely different thing. Now, if I think what you're asking is if you're working in a health store and then you go to leave to set up your own business or you go into practice, um, you have to be very mindful of how you do that, knowing that these people respect you, admire you and trust you. And, you know, there could be some really nice back and forth they could be an awesome source of referral for you if you play your cards right. So perhaps what you can, you know, expect is if it's a minor thing and you know there's something in the store that will be helpful, you can send them back with a script so you can at least support that business as much as you can whilst looking after your own. I always like to view things with a win-win in mind. So where both parties end up with something great out of it. No one no one loses in the equation. So really, I would just give it some time and thought and um, really careful consideration in order to try and create that. And if you go into things with the best of intention like that, being really honest and upfront, I really don't see how anything really bad could go wrong. What about the fledgling naturopath wanting to be the expert naturopath immediately? Mm-hmm. That, that fear of not knowing it all. Indeed, you know, many patients come to me with a lot of detailed information and it takes a heck of a lot to to search through that, to mm-hmm. sift through that. GPs are now finding this with Dr. Google. They're mm-hmm. actually going, man, I better be on my go. <laughs> Tell me, what should a naturopath do when they're a fledgling naturopath? Okay. This is a, such a great question and I remember it very, very well. And, you know, one of the ways that I tried to overcome that when I was first starting out was to find out what they were coming to see me for beforehand so I could do some pre-research and at least be across, you know, most of it and, and prepared for them. So often when I was, you know, taking the call for the appointment or um, or an email, I would actually say to them, yes, I would love to see you. You know, here is a couple of options for you for an appointment and may I ask what it is you'd like me to help you with? So it's a great way to invite them to start a conversation, but it also gives you a heads up about what's coming in. But let me just tell you, newsflash, everybody, none of us know it all and we never none. actually ever will. <laughs> I still fear that I don't know enough. <laughs> you but- know what? The great thing is with experience, you get to a point where you know you know enough to feel confident. And to be safe. And to be safe and to know where to go and get the information. Yep. So effectively, what you're trying to do here is not hurt someone. (laughs) It's really the concern. And let me tell you, there's absolutely no problem with researching things after they've gone and then getting back to them. And in fact, I still do it quite often. And it's not even necessarily now that I don't know it, but I want to either double check things or I want to just see if there's anything else out there or, you know, check if there's any pathology I should be running, so on and so forth. And, you know, I might say to a client, and I actually did this yesterday, 
finished up the case history and I said, listen, I'd like to take a few days just to sit with this. I've got a number of ideas already, but I just want to consider how I'm going to craft this program for you. So please leave it with me. I'll probably fire a few more questions through to you over the next couple of days and I'll have something to you by the end of the week. And there is nothing wrong with that at all. Not at all. I remembered a a seminar series that Biosuchels did in year 2000 before Mm. I joined them. and it was talking about practice building. Mm. And one of the key things that I picked up from that was uh, this practitioner saying to the patient, this first visit is going to be quite frustrating because I may not give you all the answers now. I'm mm-hmm. going to want to look at your picture mm. to see indeed if I want to take your case on mm. or if it's more appropriate if I refer you on to some other practitioner. Mm-hmm. And then we'll chat again and the case will be either mine or, or another practitioner, whatever is going to be best for your health. Mm. Now, that does two things. It sets you up as an ultra professional. Yes. It also sets you up as, a, as an ethically moral person. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's really important for patients to have that trust in you, that you're looking after their best intentions. Absolutely. I actually don't, I don't always do this, but I have the option for every potential client to actually have a free 10, 15 minute chat with me on the phone and I will ask ask them, you know, some key questions to work out whether I'm the best fit for them both on a, you know, in terms of my qualifications and experience and the areas that I am, you know, particularly good at and also the patient therapist fit also. Some, sure. You know, occasionally that isn't right either and then referring them on is the best thing to do. And then you haven't wasted each other's time, mm. they haven't wasted their money and they will remember you fondly um, and with, you know, good standing even if you don't ever become their naturopath and potentially, again, could be referring to you. Now, you know, some key things, of course, are having some good reference manuals on your desk. There's also nothing wrong with pulling those out and looking something up on the spot, especially if they have something a little unusual or rare. And I would almost say to you, you know, especially in the beginning, chances are your patient is going to know about more about their condition than you do at the, sh- the time they show up. Because why wouldn't they? If they mm. have something that's been serious or been prolonged or perhaps they've not gotten results with other forms of medicine, they are going to have been on Google and they are going to have been researching. And that's actually a brilliant sign of a very committed and motivated yeah. client. And, you know, I would be congratulating them on taking responsibility for the health. You know, it's very impressive to see that. And, you know, you'd happily look at the material they've got um, and you've got access to resources that they can't find as a member of the public that you'd like to actually go and you know vet also before coming back to them. So, you know, expect that. You know, I, I've had people show up with entire novels of things and it can be frustrating at times because they'll often have taken information from sources that aren't credible, that aren't referenced yeah. and, you know, we've all seen them. What I would really stress you shouldn't do is criticise what they show you. Because what you're doing if you do that is you're inadvertently criticising their choices, one of them which is you. So I would be encouraging and supportive and then just, you know, come back to them with your own information um, and, you know, just set aside what isn't relevant. Mm. Um, I can't remember who told me, but somebody was talking to me about this issue not very long. In fact, indeed, I think it was Keone Moore. Mm. And she was saying, oh, that's interesting. Okay, I would do this. Yeah. Not saying I wouldn't do that. Mm-mm. I would do this. Yes. And then you're just stating the obvious, what you're going to do. Yeah, and, and it's all in the languaging mm. and you know how you speak to them. What about the newly fledged naturopath who wants to cure their patient of everything? 
And it's not always (laughs) applicable nor practical, is it? No, it's not. And that was so me. And I think it's probably many of us when we first come out of college. We, you know, we go in there wanting to save the world and fix everybody and we want everyone to feel great immediately. Now, gosh, it's you've really got to take a step back. And to be honest, you will make that mistake a few times before you learn the lesson the hard way, probably. Um, but the key here really is it probably took them a long time to develop that condition. It's probably going to take them a wee while to reverse it and heal. And you've also got to prioritise what you're treating also. And this can be a little bit of a delicate balancing act, actually, because when you take a case history, for example, someone might come to you um, for pimples but they are really overweight, their diet is horrendous, they've got IBS, you know, gas, bloating, intermittent constipation, diarrhea, plus high blood pressure, and you're like, you're about to have a heart attack, who cares about your pimples? Um, And you really, and and of course, you know, the bad skin is completely related to the bad digestion and the bad diet. And so it's really, it's such an art being a naturopath. You have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure out what's going on. You've got to be Picasso to paint the whole picture. And then you've actually really got to be a, a coach, almost like a life coach, as well as a naturopath and step out how you're going to help somebody heal. Now, there's obviously we're always trying to treat the cause, but I would also always recommend that you attempt to treat the symptoms or provide a quick win in the first couple of weeks to motivate somebody. So something that's going to make them feel better or look better um, or a, a create a difference that they will notice within within that first four weeks. Now, the other part of that really is also managing expectations. So stepping out that, you know, uh, hormonal rebalancing might take three to six months. Um, a gut repair program is a six to eight week program. And, you know, these are the kind of results I get with weight loss on this particular program. And so what we'll do is we'll check in with you every four weeks for the next three months. If there's any problems, call me. I'll be here to support you on email. And And that sort of thing as well. So please don't ever try to fix everything in your first consult. You will fail miserably. You'll spend the rest of the day trying to write a program. And the other thing too is there is a finite limit to how much people can take and change Mm, in one go. And this is a lesson I learned the hard way. We all did. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I'm going to give you the perfect diet and the perfect lifestyle plan and the perfect supplement regime. We're creatures of habit. And the way we change our health is changing our patterns Mm. and our habits. And those things have to be introduced one step at a time. And you've got to master a habit before you move on to the other thing. So don't ever give anyone more than two or three things to change at once and give them a month or two to really get the hang of that before you try something else. And of course, the amount of supplements you take, I mean, uh, we've probably all been at that point where we're taking everything for everything. But even me, I've gotten sick of taking so many capsules. So you've also got to be mindful of the impact that it's having on their life and their well-being and, and those sorts of things as well. So the balancing act is different for every patient and it's also different for every practitioner and their patients. And you've got to find that on your own. But you've just really got to prioritize the first thing and then 
often there'll be a positive flow on effect anyway. For instance, you can't improve someone's diet without it improving their digestion and their waistline and their skin. So really look at where the major cause is coming from and just start with that and then let the rest roll out. One of the questions I had to learn the hard way was asking them what they wanted. <gasps> oh, that's a good one. <laughs> and and sometimes it was dichotomous to what mm-hmm. I had prioritised. Mm-hmm. It wasn't important to them. Mm-hmm. Um, moreover, as you mentioned before, sometimes um, they might come in for some remedial thing. You might uncover something that's actually potentially sinister, or at least you might be unsure of it. Mm. And it's not appropriate to go any further until you get the all clear. Yes. So refer out. Yes. Um, And, you know, I mean, I speak about this often. Mm -hmm. Iron is the one. I'm tired. Give me some iron. No. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, 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 no. Yeah. Um, It's the one mineral that I am really cautious about until I know Mm -hmm. there's no issue um, with progression. Um, What about growth progression in the clinic? So there are lots of things that go into growing your business and growing your clientele and growing your network and all of those sorts of things. So, you know, some practical in-clinic things are systematise everything, have all your forms ready to go, have a great practice management system where you're looking after your patient files and your diary. And I think one of the key things that I was taught early on was to always book that follow-up appointment at the end of that appointment with you. And that way you don't have to diarise a reminder. You don't have to then chase them once they've left when they may be, you know, their headspace is somewhere else and they might think, oh, it's too hard or I'm too busy. Um, So, you know, at the end of the appointment, you'll likely have taken payment at that point. And then you can say, okay, Mrs. Smith, um, this you know particular regime is going to last for two weeks or four weeks, or I'd, I'll expect to see a result in three weeks or so. So I'd like to see you back here in four weeks. What day suits you on the first week of March to come back in, you know, and have that ready and, and rebooked and ready to go. Um, so that's, you know, obviously practical in-clinic things. Growing your network is one of, uh, I think, the single most important things to help establish your business in the area, finding referral sources. Uh, I was part of a business networking group uh, for a year, which was just fantastic, especially as a sole trader or a sole operator. It can be quite lonely working on and in your business. Mm-hmm. And it was wonderful to have a network of other business owners to actually meet with every week and who were actively trying to find your business. Even though they couldn't help me be a better naturopath, um, they did teach me other things about business and were a wonderful um, part of my community. Uh, but building your networks actively by you know showing up to association events and That sort of thing is key. And then also marketing. I think one of the key things um, that none of us are taught, we're not taught business skills. And if you haven't come from a background with that already, we make a lot of mistakes in that area typically and fumble our way through that. And one of the key areas is really about marketing and promoting yourself. And you should always be marketing always. In fact, every day be taking some kind of action. Now that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you've got an ad live every day or you're writing an article a day or a blog post a day or even a social media post a day, but you really do need to create a marketing schedule for yourself. And you can measure your return on investment in that way also, as long as you're not doing ad hoc things. Um, But yes, Knowing how to use social media properly and doing it very well is key. Creating a database, um, you know, for direct mailing, however you decide you want to roll that out is key. Mm. Um, 
and looking at other ways and avenues of PR and and raising your personal profile, I think is really, really important. In this industry in particular, although I think this is probably true of many, we've really got to step up the way in which we show up in the world and actually engage people and invite people in to learn about us and what we do. And really, especially because we are in the healing and wellness industry, having some of who you are and your you know, compassion and kindness along with your skills and education come through is important. I'll never forget this quote, people don't care what you know until they know how much you care. So allow that to come through in what you're saying and how you're saying it and how you're doing what you're doing in every place in the world. And that I think is a great way of actually to use a bit of a woo-woo word, magnetizing your ideal clients to you. So I have to ask one of the questions which commonly pops up, Amy. Mm -hmm. Ring, ring. How much does it cost to see the naturopath? If you're a new student, you're probably still working out how to charge for your appointments. And I I do want to say this. Obviously, you've got practical things to bear in mind in terms of the kind of rent that you might be paying somewhere, the kind of markup you've got on your supplements, uh, the kind of income you'd like to earn and what that works out to be perhaps on an hourly basis. But I think you also need to consider very carefully um, or, or rather avoid charging for your time and don't confuse that with the value that you're delivering either. So I'm not going to tell you what I charge. I'm not going to tell you what you should charge. There's a number of ways that you can work that out. But what someone's really asking when they ask you that question, apart from the fact that they practically want to know what it's going to come out of their pocket when they see you, they're also asking you what value they're going to get in return for that. So, you know, one of the things that I... I don't ever get asked that question, actually, but that could well be because I have been doing this for a while and and most of my stuff is referral. They've decided they're coming to see me anyway, and even if they don't know what I charge, they don't care. But what I do offer any potential client is, you know, a free 10, 15-minute chat on the phone to work out if 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 I can help them or if I'm the right person to help them. And if someone's, you know, asking on behalf of someone else, I might say, well, listen, I actually offer this to work out whether we're actually right for each other. They might, you know, they have the choice of me being their therapist or not. I also have the choice of them being a client, which is a really nice way to start out a relationship because it's a very collaborative, Mm. even-footed relationship, I think, in that way. But why actually always put my price in my first email if they don't already know it or I remind them? So... Um, When I'm sending pre-appointment paperwork, I've got a couple of forms I get people to sort out and I I also ask them, you know, to bring along their medications and supplements or or a list or photos pre-appointment so that I can see it when we sit down. And so in that, I'll also say, you know, um, a full, the cost for a, a full adult consultation is X. And in this appointment, we, it will include blah, 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 blah. And I'll go through and I'll list all of the things that I regularly do. So it'll be, um, we'll be discussing your full health history, reviewing all of your results. We might be running a couple of tests. And from there, we'll craft a, you know, a health plan for you so that they know what they're getting for that money. And I always try and add more value also. So before they come, 
if I know there's a particular area of interest and I've written an article about that, I might even say, P.S., here's an article I thought you might like to read and add the link or drop in the PDF. Or if it's after their appointment, I might just, I'll usually have follow-up questions or I'll be sending them their program um, or maybe their results from pathology as a follow-up. I'll then also say, you know, I also thought this recipe would be something you'd be interested in and add that as well. So always be adding value where you can Mm. um, and asking yourself, how can I help this person in other ways? Uh, But yeah, price is a a really big one. And I think the question really is, what value am I going to get from coming to see you? And it's not the hour you gave them. It's not the even necessarily the program you're going to give them. It's the result that they're seeking and the guidance and support you're going to be delivering them while you take them there. So a fully-fledged naturopath, mm. four years odd of study, yep. come out and there's a patient in front of you that hasn't got four years of study. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be recommending things that obviously they might be contrary to what they've been doing before, otherwise sure. they wouldn't be seeing you. Sure. How do you mm. get patients to stick to a program that's partially at least alien to them? I'm really big on education and empowering people through through that. Now, you have to be mindful of who you've got sitting in front of you. And, you know, you can, with the pre-screening questionnaire that I do, I can sometimes pick up someone's mindset. And certainly by the end of the appointment, I'll have that. And you've got several different types of clients. You've got the person who just wants to be told what to do and they don't really, they're not that interested in why it works. So you don't want to overwhelm them with information or, you know, the the biochemistry behind why this is going to help them. They don't care. They just want to be told what to do and they want to go. And then you've got the other extreme people who've, who've Dr. Googled everything and have maybe even been a therapist hopping and are perhaps a bit nervous and really want to know more than your average client. But I think most people fall some in the middle. People like understanding how they ended up with this problem usually and how they can actually help themselves out of it. And you've also got to ask yourself, is this person a pain avoider or a joy seeker? So what is it that's actually going to motivate them? Now, all motivation is self-motivation. What's in it for me is the question that they're asking themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, for them, it could be a pain-avoiding thing, like they hate their acne and they would just do anything to not have pimples on their face. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what you want to say to them is point out the markers along the way of progress and, again, manage those expectations of how quickly that they can expect to see things and always try and overshoot that so when they get results earlier – you know, you're over delivering. Um, and, you know, with your experience, you'll you'll have that kind of um, ballpark in mind. Um, or they might be someone who is joy seeking. And what I mean by that, and I'm sure psychologists have a proper word for that. But let's say you've got someone who's coming in wanting to lose weight because their wedding is in six months time. You want to really attach them to that particular goal and imagining what it's going to feel like on the day in their beautiful dress. That's and how, secondary gain. Yeah, yeah. So what they're going to get from it as opposed to what they're trying to get rid of. Um, and, you know, really educating them about why you're getting them to take something. I know every time I write a prescription for my clients, I have a very detailed way of setting it out when they take stuff, what they're taking, what time of day, what meal or between meals. And in the last column, I actually have the reason why I've given it to them, what that thing is actually going to, is doing for them. So mm. they understand and have something else to refer back to about why I've given that to them again. And I think that's really important to, you know, help make them part of the process as well, um, especially if you've got lots of ideas and 
There might you might be you know have too many things you want to give them, but you know it's too much. You can really have a nice dialogue with them and help them be part of driving that process and put them back in charge of their own health by letting them be a proactive part of the process. One of the great tips I I gleaned from a chiropractor who works very well with children down mm. in Launceston, Tasmania, Roberto Disaza. Shout mm. out to you, Roberto. <laughs> um, he works a lot with kids, and mm. he works very well in with the local. A medical community, mm. and one of the things he he taught me basically was was that he sits down with the child, and there's the parent with the child, mm. and he sits down with the child and says, "This is what I want to want you to take, mm. but I want to make sure that it's okay for you." Mm. And he actually mixes up what he's going to give this child right there and then, wow. and gives it to the first dose to the child right there and then, so the child mm. has this empowerment about, you know, gets the child to actually mix it indeed, mm-hmm. and says, so this is your medicine that you're going to be taking. Very clever. Yeah, very mm. clever. And t- you know, we tend to talk to the parents, not realising it's the child you've got to treat there. Mm-hmm. So I guess that sort of comes in from working in with uh, experts in your community that you might yes. be learning off, yes. networking at seminars indeed, things like that. So I have to ask the difficult question. You've yes. got a plan and a result yes. idea in your mind. Mm-hmm. That doesn't always happen. What happens when you don't get the desired results that you wanted or expected? Well, that happens to all of us happens on occasion. happens to all practitioners everywhere. <laughs> um, look, it means, it could mean one of it, several things. It may well be there is some sort of pathology that you haven't done, something missing that you've overlooked, or you know what, there's many ways to achieve a particular result. And if the first way didn't work, chances are you probably have a second or third way of potentially doing that. Um, And detox is a good example. There's many different ways that you can help someone detoxify. Some won't suit everybody and then you might try some other strategies. So again, this comes down to managing expectations. And if you know someone's got something challenging or difficult or has perhaps tried a number of things that haven't worked, it's worth counseling them to say, okay, we're going to try this for four weeks or eight weeks or six weeks, whatever it is. If you haven't improved by 50%, you know, when we're halfway through or you haven't seen a result by this time, I'm going to get you to come back in and we're going to try this instead. But this is what works for most people most of the time. So I'd like to start there if that's okay with Mm. you. So that, you know, they aren't uh, imagining that at the end of those six weeks, everything's going to be great. Now, there are going to be times where you're certain that, you know, that program has fixed every single other person that's come through your doors and bang, this person just doesn't respond. And really, it just means there's more questions to be asked. There's always a reason, either it's not working or there's a reason why, you know, they're not responding to it. Now, it could be something as simple as, you know, if they've got digestive issues and you're giving them essential fatty acids, they're actually just not absorbing it and that's why their symptomatology isn't improving. Or maybe that isn't the issue after all and you need to run some more tests or dig a bit deeper. There's always an answer and there's always a way. I think the real question is... At what point do you realise that it's beyond your scope and need to refer them on? And this, again, comes down to building really good networks. So, you know, I've got... Yep. 
I know I've got some great <laughs> I've practitioners. I've got two patients here in my head. <laughs> yes, and we've all had them, and we'll all have them again. Mm. And you've got it. This is why building a great network and knowing what everyone else's niches or expertise is is wonderful. Because if you've got someone, for example, who you know, I specialize in skin stuff, so I do pretty well there. Uh, but I do have someone else I know who does very, very well. And if I struggle to get results using all the ways that I normally do, and I've exhausted my ideas. I will send them on. And the great thing about doing that is I will actually send a detailed letter, a referral letter across and actually specify the strategies I've used, the investigations that were done to really, that way the patient doesn't feel like they've wasted their time or money because they're not explaining it again, trying the same things again, and they know they're being sort of up-leveled to an expert, so to speak. Um, I remember a patient I was treating for amenorrhea coming off the OCP. Mm. Uh, she... Definitely wanted to see me as her practitioner. Mm. And as her treatment progressed within a, a few weeks, two, three weeks, she had this absolutely horrible breakout of skin mm. um, on her on her <clears> face. <throat> and it was dramatic. Mm. And I just thought, I am not doing you a service. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to continue to see me and, mm. and work through it. And I said, look, I really am not doing your service. I had to stop. I had to farm mm. her out to mm-hmm. somebody that I had faith in. Yep. Um, Penelope North, thanks so much. <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, there was another lady that was inappropriate for me to treat because she was she was starting to get to a period of unsafe. Mm. Uh, she wanted basically me to continue doing something that would have led to being unsafe. Sure. And that was t- as simple as continuing to treat high-dose zinc. And I said, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and she refused to see somebody more appropriate. Mm. I just had to stop. Yeah. But I think so you've got to be really stick to your ethical guns yes. and be, be make sure that you're safe. Mm-hmm. And the other point is that a perfect diagnosis mm. is reached over time. Yes. As long as you're using the etiological sieve to go through all of the possible causes of yes. their symptomatology. Yes. So sometimes it may be a reassessment mm-hmm. of something that you might miss. And the other thing that you have to be aware of is that it can be an can it's this isn't unheard of it can be non-compliance sure and so it you have to have an open dialogue about this and just say well how alien was this for you is mm. it working for you do mm. we want to take baby steps mm-hmm. maybe take a step back and and the example here I'm thinking of is trying to get somebody off alcohol. Sure. Um, I remember a dialogue I had with a lawyer. Mm, mm. Didn't go well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know exactly what the you're liquid saying. liquid lunches. She yeah. wouldn't give them up. Yeah, yeah. It is, it is really tricky. Sometimes you do have to discharge people from care um, for for many reasons, including non-compliance and because that's becoming unsafe. But it is also, it's meeting people where they're at and then helping them move forward from there. And that is going to be different for everybody. Um, Some people can make big leaps very comfortably and others will have to really slow incremental changes. Um, It's still worth doing regardless of which way you approach it, but it is important that you try and ascertain what kind of patient they are in order to be able to match them on the first go if you can. Sometimes indeed it can be that, you know, they felt They've felt felt overwhelmed Certainly. by what they have to do, mm-hmm. and you know you might have thought in in your mind, look, I I really need these people to be on three things, three mm. core things mm. that are going to help them. Yep. You may not know that 
they might have financial issues and they really are not able to have three things. Mm. And so you have to have an open dialogue to say, hey, you know, what's going on here? Are you uncomfortable? Is something, am I being Mm -hmm. too overbearing? Mm -hmm. Where is it from your perspective? And that takes not just skill, it takes bravery. Yeah, and sensitivity as well. What about another potentially uncomfortable thing? And that is for a naturopath to dialogue with doctors who, Mm. let's face it, very often you're going to come across doctors who don't agree with what you're doing. Mm. I was a nurse. Mm. I am a nurse. But when I was nursing, I did not agree with naturopathic principles one iota. Indeed, mm-hmm. I used to hassle somebody <laughs> and had went cap in hand later on my going, oh, my goodness, how yeah. arrogant was I? <laughs> um, albeit that there are going to be health professionals out there that will not, A, understand nor um, agree with what you're doing. Mm-hmm. How do you dialogue? How do you open that door? to have an open discussion about a patient who yes. might be mutual. Yeah. You know what? Every one of those scenarios is potentially a wonderful relationship and an opportunity to further educate both parties on what we're experts in. So I guess the, the things I want to say about it is this. First and foremost, always remember that whatever medical professional you're dialoguing with, whether it's a GP or a specialist or a chiropractor or acupuncturist or whatever, went into medicine likely for exactly the same reason you did, Mm -hmm. is to help sick people get well. Now, the tricky thing is when the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. So remember, they have a piece of the puzzle you don't have and you have a piece of the puzzle they don't have. And you should always be acting in the best interest of the patient, regardless of the response or the attitude or the lack of response from the other party. Your priority and responsibility is looking after your patient and then communicating really clearly and really responsibly with their other um, governing healthcare practitioner or practitioners about what you're doing. And in an ideal world, you would be able to foster a mutually beneficial relationship for that ultimate patient care between the two of you. How amazing would it be if you could pick up the phone and say, listen, I want to give this herb, but I know they're on that drug, I'm concerned about this, but I think the risk is worth the reward. You know, will you monitor this person with me and let me know if you think we need to take them off this? And, you know, all of those sorts of things. So I think um, be very clear, be very succinct, but be very kind and be very responsible in how you communicate. And, you know, regardless of what you get back, at least you know you've conducted yourself in a way that was for the benefit of the patient. And just see how it goes from there. (laughs) And and you will have wins and you will have losses. Of course. You know, I remember speaking to a consultant physician who used to recommend glucosamine. Mm. And uh, I had the great fortune to meet this guy. And I said, look, why bother? What is it? You know, you're a specialist. Mm. Um, Tell me why you're now dabbling in Mm. the use of nutraceutical agents to help your patients. Mm. And he said, I got old, I got sore, it worked. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's classic. (laughs) It was was a cracker. Oh, that's brilliant. You know what, though? Um, You know, if you, like you, before you were exposed to it, you had a particular view of Mm. it Mm. um, based on your experience and your education. Very close. Yeah, and you know what? Um, If someone tries to forcefully open your mind, you're just going to close it even harder. It's human nature, right? Um, 
you've got to be so mindful, and I'm not trying to put the weight of the world on your shoulders, metaphorically speaking here, but every time you come into contact with someone in a complementary medical profession, especially allopathic medicine who, you know, aren't educated in natural medicines and are often trained with a particular mindset or attitude towards them. Not always, but sometimes. I have plenty of doctor friends. I know how it goes sometimes. What I would be saying to you is this could be the experience that allows them to learn something new. Yeah. And actually, which would help, of course, them personally, their friends and family and all of their patients. You're quite literally potentially going to change the world by the way that you speak to this person and the kind of information that you share. Um, So it's a huge responsibility and honour, actually, first of all, that you're even looking after somebody's health, but then to be able to reach out to someone else who's also doing the same for that person and potentially be joining forces, so to speak, to actually help get get that person well. It's really interesting when I meet GPs that may not practice integrative medicine, Mm. but have reached a stage a stage where they're comfortable Mm -hmm. with what they can do and what they're unable to do for their patients, and Mm -hmm. they say, you know what, I can't do anymore. I need to go see this. At least I know that they're safe. Mm -hmm. And and you know, this is something that naturopaths need to understand. A doctor must know that who they're going to refer to or work with or dialogue with is going to be safe for that patient. They have a responsibility, a legal responsibility to do that. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's a minimum. That's why it's so core Mm -hmm. that you must make sure that you're doing safe practice at all times. Yeah, 100%. And we'll be discussing that in another of our series in The Practical Practitioner. We certainly will. So, Amy, I thank you so much for taking us through these practical points in FX Medicine today. Thank you so much, Andrew. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This is Andrew from FX Medicine. We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Twitter 